the presentation of anarchism a social philosophy which aims at the emancipation economic social political and spiritual of the human race the emancipation Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. What Are We Clapping For? by Jack Saunders. The National Health Service occupies a very strange place in public life in Britain. It is a totem, a cultural lodestar, a myth, a legend, a religion, as the Conservative MP Nigel Lawson once described it. It appears as the last institution standing of this country's now rather decrepit, if not entirely defunct, welfare state. The only significant link left remaining to whatever socialism there was in Britain's post-war reconstruction. Simultaneously, it seems to occupy a similar emotional space in the national consciousness as the army, the monarchy and David Attenborough, with all the baggage that implies. A symbol of all that is good and noble in Britain, an avatar for the social conscience of our otherwise market-driven society. Forever indebted, the British people must reward it with claps and nonagenarian circuit training but never with pay rises for its staff. All of which makes it a difficult institution to critique. Whatever its flaws, it remains a rare patch of collective universal provision and as such is reliably employed as something concrete and popular, which advocates of further socialisation of the economy can point to. Its main critics are often people like Lawson or other free market fundamentalists, whose interest in the subject extends little further than demonstrating that anything of value must have a price tag attached to it as soon as humanly possible. It certainly isn't my intention to join that little group, their criticisms ringing ever more hollow as the world's most commodified health system, the United States, drives ever wider swathes of its population to depend on GoFundMe to pay their medical bills. These days, even the hardcore neoliberals like to disingenuously pretend that actually the high state spending and taxpayer funded insurance schemes of France and Germany are what they really want. Yet, the NHS is definitely an institution that needs critique and is an odd choice for a national mythology. Other countries provide free at the point of use or virtually free at the point of use health systems many of them with superior health outcomes. Some of these are also publicly owned or at least publicly funded. To my knowledge, the NHS is the only national health system that inspires such devotion. Yet it's difficult to discern what our national appreciation of it actually achieves. It hasn't prevented the NHS's share of Britain's economic resources declining from 2010. It doesn't seem to have acted as a meaningful impediment to private sector incursions, either under the Blair governments or Conservative ones. It hasn't prevented NHS staff being some of the worst paid healthcare workers in Europe.
It has not prevented the National Health Service as a bureaucratic institution from mirroring many of the same patterns of exclusion and discrimination that structure life in Britain more generally. It does little to impede the general destitution afflicting other parts of the welfare state, which are no less vital to the population's health, including social care and social housing. There is an extent to which NHS worship actually enables many of these features to evade detection. It depoliticizes the conversation, allows even conservative politicians to heart the NHS in some abstract way, and therefore throw a veil over real conversations about workers' rights and healthcare provision. Real political conversations about health and health work are often crowded out by an absurd discourse around misunderstood statistics. X thousand more nurses, X billion more funding, abstracted from the real needs of the population. It is perhaps time to ask why Nye Bevan's piece of real socialism continues to be degraded, even as the entire political class joins hands to praise it to critique what kind of health services Britain set up and what subsequently became of them. When the National Health Service was established in 1948, it was a real piece of socialism, but only for citizens at the core of a global empire which was coming apart. How imperialism actually shaped post-war social democracy at home is a huge discussion, to which I cannot do justice here. Suffice to say, it was a key determining context for Britain's post-war role in the global economy and therefore the resources available to it. At foundation, the National Health Service was already one of Britain's largest employers, with 410,000 staff. By 1961, it had taken over from the National Coal Board as the largest. This shift from an economy driven by resource extraction and heavy industry to one built on service work, reflected a more general economic change across the industrial nation-states of Western Europe and North America. We don't often look at the NHS as an employer rather than as a service, but it's fair to say that from the outset it was a bad employer. In part, this is because of conditions that were baked into the service at foundation. I say foundation, but it would be better to think of 1948 as a nationalisation. The NHS Act saw the state take over the running of thousands of hospitals from Britain's old, mixed economy of health services. These hospitals came from two main traditions, voluntary hospitals and municipal health services. The former, largely the legacy of Victorian philanthropy, bore the paternalist marks of their prior existence. Their work cultures were deeply hierarchical, regimented, revolving around the personal authority of senior consultants, matrons and hospital administrators, overseen by hospital boards run by local elites. Municipal health services, meanwhile, were often more functionally managed, with collective bargaining for workers and democratic oversight from local government. But they too bore the mark of their previous life, they carried with them the same regional inequalities that marked British society more generally. 
with richer localities in a better position to fund health services. And much of this unevenness is still reflected in our modern postcode lottery. The takeovers of these hospitals by the NHS imported most of these features wholesale. Much like other nationalisations under the 1945 Labour government, existing hierarchies and patterns of authority were largely left in place, with little attempt to democratise working life within the new public sector. For workers in Britain's health services, waking up and going to work on June 5th, 1948 was very much a case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. The local bigwigs who'd comprised charitable boards were transferred more or less wholesale to make up the new administrative structure of the NHS, now as regional hospital board members. Some half-hearted attempts to introduce forms of joint consultation, which included all levels of staff, were mooted, but rapidly fell into disuse, as senior administrators and consultants declined to regularly discuss how they were to run their hospitals with the wider staff. Social class determined who had a voice in the new service. Collective bargaining was scarcely more promising as an outlet for work democracy in the infant NHS. Terms and conditions for most staff were thrashed out on wage councils, where the state largely controlled both sides of the equation. On one side of the table, the NHS employers, NHS managers who didn't set the services budget and therefore couldn't set wages without the government's permission. On the other side of the table, staff representatives doled out to a variety of staff organisations, some of them trade unions, but most of them actually more pliable professional bodies. Many of the latter, like the Royal College of Nursing, had constitutional amendments banning their members from striking. The main result of these arrangements was that NHS staff seldom had much opportunity to protest being some of the worst paid workers in Britain. And by the 1960s, NHS ancillary staff, that's porters, cleaners, laundry, catering and other manual workers, were earning on average 25% less than the average manual worker, and less even than the average unskilled manual worker. Working hours dropped much more slowly as well. NHS nursing staff were still waiting for their 48-hour working week, long after average hours in the rest of the economy dropped below 40. Under conditions of full employment, these long hours and this low pay meant the service had to deal with chronic staff shortages, something that will be very familiar for contemporary NHS staff. The system was born with a shortfall in nurses, doctors and ancillary staff, which very quickly meant recruitment overseas. First, this was directed towards the refugee camps of post-Second World War Europe, where men were sent from the Ministry of Labour to examine women from Central and Eastern Europe to determine their suitability for work as a highly conditional ticket out of destitution. Operation Bolt Signet and Operation Westward Ho aimed, amongst other things, to bring cleaners mainly to understaffed tuberculosis sanatoria in Britain. And this division of labour, where recruits from overseas were shuffled into unpopular roles in under-resourced parts of the service, 
remained a feature of NHS recruitment policy, even as attention shifted from Europe to the Caribbean, South Asia and Southeast Asia. Nurses from the Caribbean often found themselves directed into taking lower status qualifications, then discriminated against in promotions. And from the 1960s, medical personnel from South Asia found similar forces pushing them into less desirable specialties. And the significance of most of this won't be lost on a lot of contemporary NHS staff, for whom this low pay and deeply hierarchical management structure won't be unfamiliar. Union activists I've spoken to about work for the service frequently express pride in their caring labour, pride in the service they provide, but often anger at the way the NHS treats them and their co-workers. Successive reform programmes during the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s added further layers to both the hierarchical management structures and the division of labour. Management became less paternalistic, but no less top-down over the second half of the 20th century. Competition and target cultures were laid over structures that were already elite-driven, even during the early classic social democratic period of the service's history. Groups that were already marginalised in the pre-Thatcher NHS were pushed further to the margins by systematic outsourcing of ancillary services during the 1980s. Outsourcing that built on private sector involvement in the NHS, that, again, was baked in by Labour's own initial compromises with the private sector, particularly over pharmaceuticals and over contractor status for doctors, dentists and opticians. Given that many of what we see as incursions into the grand ideals of the NHS have this longer presence, it's worth asking ourselves big questions about what it is that defend the NHS really means. What are we really defending? Is it the compromised state socialism of the Attlee government? Or the top-down nationalisation and the grinding exploitation of the NHS's workforce then and now? Is it this division of labour laid down by post-colonial migration with all the discrimination that entailed? Is it the employment practices of one of the largest and most exploitative work organisations on the planet? Maybe what we're really trying to say is that we appreciate the caring labour of those 1.7 million NHS staff and that healthcare should never be commodified, never be something you have to pay for. If that is what we want to say, then perhaps we need to find a way of saying it that doesn't so thoroughly elide the exploitation with the things that we really value. Perhaps something that enables us to level a more critical and combative eye on the NHS as an employer and on the state as a provider of services more generally. The upcoming NHS pay dispute seems like a great place to start. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, 
theory and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.